You are listening to Holy Words from Holy Cross, the sermon podcast of Holy Cross Evangelical Lutheran Church in Nazareth, Pennsylvania. We hope you find these words a blessing in your daily walk with God. Please visit us on the web at www.holycrossnazareth.org or in person at 696 Johnson Road, Nazareth, Pennsylvania. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Don't be all else to me, save that thou art. What would you join me for a word of prayer? Blessed Lord, we give you thanks for the sign of our salvation and your willingness to do all that was required for the sake of our salvation. Lord, bless us now by deepening our understanding of your word and the mystery of the cross, which is your definitive word to a sin-bound world. Strengthen us by your power and by your spirit that we may see your wisdom and embrace all that you have done for us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Before I formally begin my sermon, I'm going to ask, uh, was it weird singing from a book again? Instead of the screens? <laughs> um, yeah, we haven't done that in a while, since before COVID. So um, you're always welcome to do that if the songs are in there. For the, I need to, and this is also an entree for me to tell the band, we're going to have to use um, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery another weekend because we do not have that in the books. So we'll just go right on with the one, with the, just like we did 8 o'clock, Carl. And my apologies to you who rehearsed. Um, we'll track down where the error was. But the, uh, he who opposes our God is going to have to do more than that to us to get us to stop. <laughs> from the reading we just heard from St. Paul from 1 Corinthians, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. When I became a Christian some 29, 28 years ago, um, no, and then put my feet on the track to become a pastor a year later, nobody could have sufficiently warned me about the heartbreak that that would entail. Not the heartbreak of church politics, not the heartbreak of we're debating for 10 hours the color of the rug we're going to put into the social hall, not the complaints about the state in which the other group left the church kitchen or someone took my parking spot or my pew, but the heartbreak attached to people who once walked with you in the Lord wandering away or sometimes running away and rejecting Christ and his cross. I'm preaching up here because I have some quotes to read. Um, It's just easier than running back and forth. But uh, this is what St. Paul is getting at in this passage. He talks about Jews and Greeks and he compares them. He's using them as typical social groups and ethnic groups that have a particular way of dealing with things. When he talks about Jews wanting signs, what he means is that they are what psychologists would call uh, emotionally intelligent. They, they want you to show them what they want to see. 
And Greeks like philosophy. Greeks want nice words all neatly lined up. And they are what, they, what psychologists refer to, refer to as verbally intelligent. Now we both use, everyone uses both, but he's getting here about whether you're emotionally intelligent is your normal way of getting at things or verbally intelligent is your normal way of getting at things. God, through his cross, is going to take and turn upside down all your expectations. Because after all, the silliness of God, the weak is, is more wise than our human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than our power. So, I was recently given a great example of how to do this. We watch a lot of old movies around our house and um, we were recently, recently watching My Fair Lady uh, and uh, I'm going to turn your attention to the screen for a minute. You're going to get an example of how emotional intelligence works. This is um, Audrey Hepburn and one of my favorite actors, uh, but not because we share a name, Jeremy Brett. Can you flick forward two screens for me, Delilah? Oops, nope. That's emotional intelligence. <laughs> Author Rosario Butterfield, um, being a former English professor, obviously is good with words. And she gives an example of what verbal intelligence looks like and the way God's going to turn it on its head. She's writing about the period before her own conversion, but when she was attending a church but was not a Christian. She says, I counted the costs and I did not like the math. This was my crucible, and this is my crucible. If the Bible is true, I was dead. If the Bible is false, I am the biggest fool on earth. But God's promises rolled in like another round of waves into my world. One Lord's Day, Ken was preaching on John 7, 17. If anyone wills to do God's will, he shall know concerning the doctrine. This verse exposed the quicksand in which my feet were stuck. I was a thinker. I was paid to read books and write about them. I expected that in all areas of my life, understanding came before obedience, not the other way around. I wanted God to show me, on my terms, why what I desired most was a sin. I wanted to be the judge, not the one being judged. Perhaps, I thought like Eve in the garden, I wanted to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil so that I could become and replace God. I wondered, hadn't I already done this? Hadn't we all? If my consciousness fell in Adam's sin as the Bible purports, no wonder I couldn't think my way out of this quandary. 
This wasn't a game of thinking and the matching of wits. Could my heart echo God's call for obedience? Could I will to do God's will just this once? The stakes were so very high. They always are. But the verse promised understanding after obedience. I prayed that night that God would give me the willingness to obey before I understood. And that is what the cross calls us all to. See, the word of the cross confounds all our understandings, whether they be rational or emotional. We can only understand it if we earnestly desire to want what God wants. We need to desire what God desires. And then, obey His will, and then the understanding can come. There aren't a lot of analogies to this in our own human experience. Most of our human experience is dog-eat-dog, and the more powerful you are, the more likely you are to win. But one example I was able to come up with was the raising of children. Anybody have an idea what it costs to raise a child at age 18 in today's world? The U.S. Department of Agriculture actually releases that number every so often. Um, But I went on Google this morning to get you the exact number adjusted for inflation as of this morning. $288,000.94. Now... When I get together with a good friend from my childhood, our birthdays are only two days apart, down in, uh, down in Orlando, he's chosen a life where he'll never have children. And um, I can't rationally explain to him why it's good to have children. I mean, theoretically, he's $288,000 richer than I am because, well, more than that, right? I have two. <laughs> Almost $600,000 richer than I am. And he says, you know, well, you know, when you get old, your children will visit you, and when I get old, my friends will visit me. I don't really see the difference. There's no rational way to point to the value of children. But I can tell you the experience of having and raising children makes you aware that there is nothing as valuable in the world. There's no price tag you can put on it. Frankly, I'm a different person because I had children. Children aren't a lifestyle accessory. (laughs) Um, Getting up in the middle of the night to feed the child when you had a long day of work will change you. Getting up so that your wife doesn't have to get up again to feed the child or change his diapers will change you. (laughs) Sacrificing time in your hobbies so that you can spend time that the child needs will change you. My friend said to me, uh, last time I visited him, you know, I talk with all of you, it's been so weird watching you all have children and go through that because you say, well, I can't do this because I have to go to the game or I have to go to the PTA meeting or I have to go to this or that or the other thing and I think to myself, oh, I want to go to a movie. But one thing that happens with children that doesn't happen with a friend is that new life comes into the world. Life is only born of sacrifice, either large or small. 
And that is the message of the cross. And each of us, as Christians, is called to be a parent, whether biologically or emotionally. We are all called to make sacrifices for the people around us that they may grow and new life, which is real life, can come into their world. Power plays don't create life. They create conflict. Sacrifices bring life. And we, that's why I say it every Mother's Day or Father's Day, whether you have children or not, We're called as Christians and we're blessed as Christians to be a blessing to others, taking on that role of making a sacrifice for the sake of their life. That takes me back to where we started the sermon with the word of the cross being folly to those who are perishing. Because, see, I think of those people in my life and there are many of them over the years and it's not a joke to say that every week when I'm at prayer, they're faces come to my mind and I lift them before the Lord. See, that's all we can do at a certain point. We can pray for others. And that's what we are privileged to do. We are privileged to pray for the spiritual state of others. But here's what we're called to do about our own. We're called to repent. And repent doesn't just mean saying we're sorry for the bad stuff we did. That's the easy part. It's turning away from our selfish desires toward God so that he can reform our desires the same way that having and raising children had changed my character. God's going to want to work on us our entire lives in that regard. And none of us is perfect. It's a lifetime project. You'll leave this world still trying to turn over parts of your life to God. And each of us is going through the attic of our spiritual lives, finding boxes we haven't opened for a while. Like, oh, ooh, the light of the gospel hasn't made it into that one. Things are kind of manky. Okay, God, you take that. (laughs) And that's how we know when we're departing the path of salvation. Because that's what repentance is really all about. See, I I just came to understand, really, just recently, that when the church rejected the doctrine of universalism in the 5th century, that's the teaching that all necessarily will be saved, they didn't do it because we weren't supposed to hope for that. We are supposed to earnestly pray that all will be saved. And even hope that God and His grace will do that. But it was rejected, first of all, because there's no clear scriptural teaching that that will be the case. But second of all, because of what it did to our repentance. You know what starts happening the moment you start thinking you got it made? You stop thinking earnestly about your spiritual life. You stop. It's what it did to our repentance was the reason the church rejected the doctrine. We stopped, people stopped getting engaged in self-examination. And we all stop that when we think we've got it made. We know we're departing the path of salvation when the word of the cross begins to be foolishness to us. When we don't see the point of sacrifice. And we want what we want when we want it. And we want the victory now. Instead of letting God change us through our sacrifices into the kind of person who can have a godly appreciation for the things we receive. So we can earnestly learn to desire what God desires. Today you're getting very, very familiar with the hymn Lift High the Cross. All the verses in the middle we never get to sing. (laughs) Because there's only four of them in our green book. But uh, there's a lot of stories about how that hymn got written. 
The likelihood, though, is that it goes back to Constantine. Constantine was the emperor um, that made Christianity legal, and then, in an irony, uh, armies started marching under the sign of the cross, because, you see, armies are not the kind of hammer with which you fix things, they're the kind of hammer with which you break things. And that makes it kind of ironic, there was a cross over their heads. But uh, in 615, I think it was A.D., um, the Persians came and sacked Jerusalem. And when they did so, they took a lot of riches out of the churches and took them back to the capital of Persia. And um, the emperor Heraclius went to war, war against Persia to reclaim those things. And uh, in 629, he did that. Um, and one of the things that was in there was what was purported to be a piece of the original cross of Jesus that had been in one of the, one of the churches. So he wanted to bring that piece of the true cross back into Jerusalem with much pomp and circumstance. And he was doing what Roman emperors did when they returned triumphant. Riding at the beginning of a parade, followed by armies, and people are throwing things. Our, our ticker tape parades, if you've ever seen a, a film of that at the end of World War II, that comes directly from what the Roman emperors did. When we, back when we had ticker tapes, we don't do that anymore. But... Um, Here's the story as it was written down, what happened. Because Heraclius not only wanted to bring that back to Jerusalem, he wanted to march in in glory. And he wanted to march in through the very gate out of which Christ had walked to go to the cross. So here's the story as it's told um, in one of the annals of the day. It says, Suddenly the stones of the gateway fell down and locked together, forming an unbroken wall. To the amazement of everyone, an angel of the Lord, carrying a cross in his hands, appeared above the wall and said, When the king of heaven passed through this gate to suffer death, there was no royal pomp. He rode a lowly ass to leave an example of humility to his worshippers. With those words, the angel vanished. Heraclius was stunned and he began to weep. He got off his war horse and took off all his robes as emperor. And instead of carrying the cross exalted, put that piece on his own shoulder and said these words. He said, O cross, more splendid than all the heavenly bodies, renowned throughout all the world, deserving of all men's love, holier than all things else. O cross, you were worthy to carry the ransom of the world. O sweet wood, sweet nails, sweet sword, sweet lance, you were the bearers of sweet burdens. Save the host gathered today in praise of you and signed with your banner. So not in power but in humility he entered back and in the story is that the gate reformed itself and he walked into the city. Obviously it's a very stylized story. Um, it's been embellished but what I don't doubt is that that's how Heraclius entered the city. He wanted to remind the world over which he ruled of the one who ruled over him. And so, uh, that example is one in our own lives. Wherever in our own lives we robe ourselves with glory, wherever in our own lives we are proud of ourselves and our accomplishments as though the gifts we have were ours and not given to us by God. Wherever we would be drawn to be in arm-wrestling conflict with others rather than proceeding in a way of reconciliation. The word of the cross destroys our wisdom. Destroys the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. 
And so we preach Christ crucified, first and foremost to ourselves. It's a stumbling block to our emotions, it's folly to our intellect. But when we hearken to God's call, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. When we are humbled, we look up like those Israelites did in the wilderness and see Him lifted up on the cross. And we live. Would you join me for a word of prayer? Lord, the power struggles of this world are great. And the conflict, unresolvable. Each side of any conflict arming itself more and more till it beats its enemy into submission. But we are called to the way of the cross. Not only to know its power to save us when you were adorned upon it, but to pick up our cross and follow. To make sacrifices small and large that true life might enter the world in restored relationships, in people drawn together rather than forced apart, in justice tempered with mercy. Bless us each, O Lord, to turn our lives over to you in true repentance, that your cross may be to us what it is meant to be, a sign of hope. We ask it, In the precious name of he who hung upon it, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me, save that thou art. Be thou my best thought in the day and the night. Sleeping, thy presence, my light.